Hey, everybody. Welcome to AM Live. Thank you for joining me. Give me a thumbs up if you can hear me. Or a fire emoji, even better. Thank you. Hope your weekend is going well. Really appreciate you being here. Um, as we're speaking, I believe it's just been announced that Anthony Blinken and Lloyd Austin are in Ukraine, underscoring the extent to which the U.S. is very much involved in this war, and I think is determined to see this war go on for as long as possible. And we can talk more about that, but I want to start by just briefly discussing an article that I put out this week in Real Clear Investigations, and I have the link to it in the show notes. It's called Al-Qaeda is on our side, how the Obama-Biden team empowered terrorists in Syria. And what I point out in the piece is that this is actually the Biden team's second major proxy war against Russia. It's not the first. The first was in Syria. And although, of course, no two situations are analogous, especially Ukraine and Syria, there are a lot of parallels that I think you can draw from the story of what the Biden team did in Syria. This is when they were under Obama and what is happening now in Ukraine. And it's very, very similar. Um, the most important thing is that, once again, the U.S. is getting involved in a proxy war that very much threatens the risk of direct military confrontation between the U.S. and Russia, between the, top, the world's top nuclear powers. Like in Syria, the U.S. is flooding Ukraine with weapons. And we're now seeing, just as in Syria, articles start to come out. And this was obvious from the start. But now it's being reported in the mainstream media, like on CNN this week, uh, which had a piece talking about that the U.S. has no idea what happens to the weapons that it's sending to Ukraine after it gets there. And the exact same thing happened in Syria. And who did the weapons end up in the hands of in Syria? Well, now we know. It's very obvious. It was an uh, insurgency dominated by al-Qaeda. And so, accordingly, U.S. weapons ended up in the hands of al-Qaeda. And that actually helped al-Qaeda, as I talk about in my article, capture the province of Idlib, which al-Qaeda, for, formerly known as al-Nusra, now it's known as Hayat Tahrir al-Sham, still controls today. So U.S. weaponry helped create an al-Qaeda enclave inside Syria that it still controls today. And Idlib is called, in the words of Brett McGurk, who was a senior Biden official, he served under Obama as well, as well as Trump. But he has called Idlib the largest al-Qaeda safe haven since 9-11. And you can directly draw a line between al-Qaeda's largest safe haven since 9-11 and U.S. weapons, because it was the U.S. policy of arming the insurgency in Syria that helped al-Qaeda establish its safe haven in, in Idlib, including using U.S. weapons to capture it from Syrian forces back in 2015, as I write about. So a similar thing is happening now. The U.S. is flooding Ukraine with weapons. And similar to the U.S. basically lying to the public about who was benefiting from this in Syria, inside Syria, I remember if we, were, we were told constantly that we were only helping the moderate opposition. That was the line. Well, it was Joe Biden who actually best blew open that line when um, he admitted speaking to Harvard in 2014, I'm going to pull up the clip, that actually there was no moderate middle inside Syria. That was Biden's own words. And he said that actually the reality was that U.S. weapons were going to al-Nusra, which is the al-Qaeda franchise inside Syria. And that's a similar thing happening now. Now, it's not, the Ukrainian military is not... Um, 
is not dominated by Nazis. It's not the, the vast majority of Ukrainian forces are not Nazis. But inside Ukraine, there is a very sizable and powerful far-right Nazi contingent. We all know that now. And there's no doubt that those groups are getting weapons. And there's no doubt that whatever happens with this war, they will have those weapons after this war. And that can lead to all kinds of horrible consequences. In Syria, it meant uh, disaster for Syrians primarily. But it also meant that groups like ISIS got them and are able to use them elsewhere as well. And, in, and part of the problem with Libya was that after Libya, the weapons from Gaddafi's stockpile were not only being shipped to Syria by the U.S. and its allies, but also they were distributed across uh, Libya's neighbors and led to havoc, especially in Mali. So um, we're seeing a similar situation now. So let me play for you actually what Biden said about U.S. and its allies inside Syria, because this was a rare admission of partially the truth. And I'll, I'll explain what's wrong with his comments after we hear what Biden had to say. This is Biden speaking in 2014. What my constant cry was that our biggest problem was our allies. Our allies in the region. That, uh, sorry, guys, that clip is too quiet. So I'm going to have to, I'm going to read you what, what Joe Biden said. Um, and I will find that in a second. So that's, um, so I basically, and what I'm arguing here in the article is, first of all, that just what a criminal policy this was for Syria to arm an insurgency dominated by Al Qaeda, which the U.S. knew all along was dominated by Al Qaeda. Is that document? I mean, there was all this, there was all these claims that oh, we didn't know, and we were trying to help the moderate opposition. But when you're supporting an insurgency that is dominated by Al Qaeda, you're going to help Al Qaeda, and that was warned about even internally by the Defense Intelligence Agency, which I quote in the article, and that was ignored. And so in Ukraine, I'm, I'm just seeing, it's not the exact same thing, but similar things. Overlooking concerns about an extremist contingent. In the case of Ukraine, it's the Azov Battalion, another far-right extremist, receiving U.S. support and not thinking about what the aftermath of that is, not just the direct, you know, immediate consequences of continuing a proxy war in Syria and raising the prospect of confrontation with Russia, but also what happens afterwards with all those weapons that are there. Um, and then there's also the uh, um, problem of chemical weapons. In Syria, after the insurgents were starting to lose, they started making claims of chemical weapons attacks by the Syrian government, taking advantage of a red line that Obama had laid down, um, about the saying that he would take action, in, he might take action in Syria if the red line of chemical weapons use was crossed. So that incentivized insurgent groups to basically stage false flags some of them actual chemical attacks, some of them staged. And that tested Obama. And of course, Obama backed down. He didn't enforce it because, and part of the reason is, as I've written about elsewhere, and this is obvious from the reporting of Seymour Hersh and other leaks that have come out, the U.S. knew that actually these chemical attacks, especially the main one in Ghouta in 2013, was actually carried out by insurgent groups. And of course, we have the case of the OPCW whistleblowers. And again, we're seeing you know a similar playbook in Ukraine where You've had, you know, the Biden administration talking about, you know, co consequences, responding in kind if Russia engages in chemical attacks. Recently, the Azov Battalion tried to claim that Russia carried out a chemical attack, but that kind of went away because I just didn't. I think it was too obvious that it was a scam. But it, all this stuff has echoes of Syria, and it underscores what a dangerous situation that we are in. And I'm just trying to get you guys this show Biden quote because it's very good. Um, and here it is. 
So this is what Biden said. This is Biden in 2014. The fact of the matter is the ability to identify a moderate middle in Syria was there was no moderate middle. Okay. That's Biden giving a lie to what everyone else in his administration was saying at the time about the moderate opposition. And then he says, what my constant cry was, was that our biggest problem was our allies. Our allies in the region were our largest problem in Syria. The Turks, who are great friends. I have a great relationship with Erdogan, who I spent a lot of time with. The Saudis, the Emiratis, etc. What were they doing? They were so determined to take down Assad and essentially have a proxy Sunni-Shia war. What did they do? They poured hundreds of millions of dollars and thousands of tons of weapons into anyone who would fight against Assad, except the people who were being supplied were al-Nusra, al-Qaeda, and the extremist elements of jihadis coming from other parts of the world. And that's exactly right. (laughs) And Biden apologized for that quickly, not because he got anything wrong, but because he blurted out the truth. Now, the only error he made was blaming all of this on his allies, because what he left out was that the U.S. was playing a critical role in supplying the jihadists, because it was basically replicating an arrangement from previous proxy wars, like in Saudi Arabia and in Nicaragua. So sorry, like in Afghanistan and Nicaragua, where um, Saudi Arabia would, would basically foot the bill, which helped the U.S. evade congressional oversight, and the CIA would help facilitate the transfer of the weapons that Saudi Arabia was buying on behalf of the U.S., So for Biden to disingenuously blame Saudi Arabia and Turkey and say, oh, this was our biggest problem was them doing this is completely disingenuous because the U.S. was centrally involved in all this. And that's the part that he left out. But the rest of it was absolutely true. The people being supplied by the U.S. and its allies were an al-Qaeda dominated insurgency. And that's what I've written about in my article. And we can talk more about it if anyone has any questions about it. And in Syria, in Ukraine now, uh, we have – Arguably an even more dangerous situation because this is now on Russia's border. Russia intervened in Syria in 2015 and Russia intervened to quote John Kerry, who I cite in the piece. Russia intervened because Kerry said, quote, they didn't want a Daesh government, Daesh being ISIS, because as Kerry explained, the U.S. strategy was to watch ISIS encroach on Damascus. And the strategy was to basically use ISIS's growth and its threat to Assad to force Assad into a position to negotiate his way out of power and to select a Syrian leader installed by the U.S. That was Kerry's strategy, basically claiming to fight ISIS in Syria, except in areas where ISIS's growth could threaten Assad, in which case ISIS was leveraged. And I'm going to play that clip, and hopefully the sound will be better. And if, uh, here. The reason Russia came in is because ISIS was getting stronger. Daesh was threatening the possibility of going to Damascus and so forth. And that's why Russia came in, because they didn't want a Daesh government. And they supported Assad. And and uh, and we know that this was this was growing. We were watching. We saw that that Daesh was growing in strength. And we thought Assad was threatened. We thought, however, we could probably manage, uh, you know, that Assad might then negotiate. Instead of negotiating, you got Assad. Now you got the group that supported That's Kerry making plain the U.S. strategy inside Syria, claiming to fight ISIS, but in areas where, I, where ISIS could threaten Assad, he says, we were watching. 
and we thought we could probably manage. And we were hoping that that would put Assad in a position to, to negotiate. And by that, he means negotiate his way out of power, which was the official U.S. position. So essentially, the U.S. position inside Syria was, while claiming it was arming moderate rebels, actually supporting an al-Qaeda-dominated insurgency, simultaneously allowing ISIS to grow and threaten Damascus in the hopes all this could pressure Assad to, to be ousted. And that's the U.S. policy inside Syria in a nutshell. And what I find amazing is that the people who behind this policy carry Victoria Newland, Joe Biden, Jake Sullivan, Anthony Blinken, all these officials who carried out this policy under Obama have escaped any scrutiny for it. I mean, look how often Syria is talked about in the U.S. media, even though right now, as we speak, hundreds of troops are there at multiple bases. And just recently, some U.S. troops were injured in a what looks to be an insider attack. But we just don't talk about it. It's just we're not allowed to even talk about a place that we're still currently occupied, let alone talk about a multi-billion dollar proxy war that empowered al-Qaeda. And the person who put it best, and then I'll open it up to calls, was Jake Sullivan, our current national security advisor, who wrote in February 2012 to Hillary Clinton, quote, al-Qaeda is on our side. So that was the official U.S. policy. And the guy who wrote that is now the national security advisor of the United States. And that tells you something about where we're at. All right. That's enough of my rant. Let's open it up to calls. And Sal, you are up first. Um, yeah, Aaron. So, I mean, it's quite well documented. Uh, President Truman even armed uh, uh, terrorist groups in Ukraine in the late 1940s. Uh, that went nowhere. Uh, the arming of and the creation of proxies or militias all over the world, ranging from Angola to uh, Nicaragua, elsewhere. It's most of these are really well documented. There's um, in search of enemies by uh, John Stockwell. So uh, most of these are uh, quite well documented, and it seems like there's a there's never been any repercussions for any of the arming of say uh, uh, Al Qaeda or uh, other groups in Afghanistan. It seems that all the policymakers they just keep on failing upwards. And uh, th that seems to be fine. So there's, there's no cost to you in terms of policy. Uh, but in this particular case, uh, I don't think they've ever tried to figure out the calculus of uh, now that all the gloves have been removed, what will Russia do? Will they start to create and arm proxies all over the world uh, in areas that the U.S. will be competing uh, with, say, Russia or will the Chinese adopt the same playbook. And I don't think that's ever been part of the calculus ever at all. Like uh, Michael Shower wrote about blowback. The book was blowback, but it seems like there's never any blowback calculus measured ever for any of these uh, uh, militias that are armed uh, all over the world. And many of them are actually on the State Department's list of designated terrorists, uh, yet they are armed. Uh, the Azov Battalion, there was a 2018 uh, 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 Congress passed uh, banning them from being uh, armed, and now they're even like uh, organizing in you know places like New York City openly. So, what if the Russians start to do the same? What if the Chinese start to do the same? What if other uh, emerging powers start to adopt the same playbook? That's a great question. I haven't thought of that. I mean, my first reaction is only questioning whether Russia has the resources to do something like that. Obviously, especially now, they're going to have less money to throw around because this war has cost them a lot. So do they have the resources to fund 
proxy forces around the world and who would they even be? The U.S. has a lot more money. And in the case of you and in the case of Syria, it wasn't just U.S. money. It was, you know, billions of dollars coming from Saudi Arabia and Qatar, especially. They had all the money in the world. Yeah, but and, you don't need that much uh, money or resources to arm, say, drug cartels in Mexico who are right on your border. I mean, that, that's my like to give them a dirty bomb. That doesn't cost that much money. Right. OK, fair enough. Fair enough. Look, uh, it's um, I mean, what you're saying is speculative and it's something it's a possibility I never entertained. But it's certainly we are in a new new era now. I really do believe that. And so options like this are at least worth considering. So thanks for raising this 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 very scary possibility. Okay, uh, and we'll take the next caller, which is Sam. Hey, Aaron. Uh, can hey, you hear me okay? Yes, hi. Well, uh, great to be talking with you. Um, I just, I have to I have to correct you a little bit, man. You see, you uh, you referred to the, uh, the group in Idlib as Al-Qaeda, and you see, you're using facts, and there's, there's your problem, because according to, you know, the mainstream media, these are rebel groups. Yes. You see. <laughs> even though, even though I, I think I remember, and correct me if I'm wrong, but first they were Al-Nusra, that was their yep. name, and then they changed it to a group, a name called, I think it was Jabhat Fatah al-Sham, That's something right. like intermediate, because I remember the guy was on CNN talking about like, no, 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 we're not Al-Nusra, look, we're our new name, and I remember like two articles were coming out like, Hey, this group is not so bad. Look, they're reading the Bible and and they're being more open. And then it became uh, Hayat Tarasham, which was That's more right. of a takeover conglomerate you know, organization that absorbed the little other you know pocket groups that were shipped there via the buses. Yep. But uh, you see, so you're, you you got to use the proper wording, not terrorists, rebels. And then uh, you know we saw this. I think. I want to say 2013. I remember seeing this, and I kept like thinking it was something out of the Onion, but it was a, a an article from Vice News. I remember it was somebody named Gold, maybe Daniel Gold, Danny Gold, something like that, and it was titled "The Al Qaeda in Syria We Should Be Supporting." And I thought, huh. no, this can't. And I please fa- uh, fact check me on that, but it essentially was talking about like this is yeah they're Al Qaeda, but they're not the global kind. And then I think there was even an article – there was something – somebody sent me with some think tank, and you might have come across it. Some think tank wrote like a huge um, article about like – or some th- you know piece about like how we have to work with the group in Idlib, and they have to be part of like you know the negotiations. And it's, it's no longer you – know, even though it's, it's very obvious when every reporter goes in there and they have to cover up – you know, if you're being killed that, yes, this is an Al Qaeda group, but, you know, with PBS putting the guy in a, in a suit, eh, maybe they're not so bad. That's that's the argument that we're, we're already we've already seen it, as you pointed out, 20 what was it 2016. These were neo-Nazis and now they're far right groups. Yes, that's right. Yeah. At The New York Times, it's so funny if you look at their mm-hmm. coverage of the Azov Battalion since 2014. So the first few years of the Donbass war, they were a far sorry a neo-nazi paramilitary organization that is how the new york times would describe them now they're just far right neo-nazi is gone it doesn't exist anymore so it means that miraculously the azza battalion has undergone some kind of sensitivity some kind of sensitivity training that downgrades them from neo-nazi to just far right yeah and that's when uh, when i was laughing because it was like oh yeah we we already saw this in syria numerous times when you had uh, the Army of Islam, whose leader said bin Laden's a hero, 
the New York Times did a whole puff piece on him, like, yeah, he's, he's toned down his views. So yeah. I was not remotely surprised by any of this change. And I was like, yeah, so what we're going to see now is, and I always love when CNN does their coverage of, like, how did this happen? And it's like, they do this every time when it's like, when it was Libya about how it's going to be democracy. And they do a whole, like, undercover piece, and they were like, slave trafficking in Libya? How did this happen? And it's like, really? Yeah. We didn't do this dance several times? Or they had one that made me laugh hard, which I gave them credit for covering, but it was, how did the, uh, the, hand, the American weapons end up in the hands of al-Qaeda in Yemen? And I was like, you understand our partner in that, in that you know, massacre is Saudi Arabia. And you're genuinely asking, how did this happen? <laughs> I, I, I'm kind of like, I yeah. feel like you know the answer, but you're just purposely dodging it as much as you can. Well, and, and what also happened was before the Yemen war, the, the Houthis were fighting al-Qaeda. Yeah. And, the, and the U.S. was actually partnering with them in some way, sharing intelligence to help them fight them. But that ended with the Saudi invasion, which Obama decided to support. So, look, the Obama-Biden team's record of getting on the side of al-Qaeda, it's not just in Syria. It's not just in Libya, where after supporting the jihadi-dominated insurgency in Libya, the Obama administration was repaid for, uh, for their services with the murder of Christopher Stevens on 9-11, along with three other Americans. By the way, Stevens appears to have – and I talked about this in my article – Stevens appears to play a, put a critical role in the rat line of sending weapons from Libya to Syria. That appears to be why he was at the Benghazi compound on that day. That's what all the available evidence suggests. And yeah, but that, that's the kind of blowback we don't hear about. And that's why now in Ukraine, it's the same thing. You know, it's like the moderate rebels in Syria uh, were actually Al-Qaeda. And now in Ukraine, all, it's all freedom fighters. We're supposed to just overlook the fact that it's not just the Azov Battalion, but people who are attracted by the Azov Battalion who come from around the world to fight for their cause. Right. And the, we call them, uh, well, we might factually point out these guys have neo-Nazi ties, but we have to use the terminology of the media. Freedom fighters, Aaron. Get get with the program, man. You just you have to get with the program about that. But yeah. um, the one thing I would say is, uh, you, you know, you referenced the chemical attack. I would say if Russia makes more advances, you'll see the domino effects not of uh, 2018, but more of the 2017 effect. Because, and feel free to correct me if I'm wrong on any of this, but I remembered when uh, Trump was in office, uh, Tulsi Gabbard, who I still have massive disagreements with with her shift to the right, but she was the one who went to Trump early on and said, you got to cut these, the funding uh, to these groups in Syria. And I think it was end of February, Reuters uh, put in an article that said all funding to these groups have been just cut, like everything has been cut. And then t- wasn't it, it was State Department uh, Tillerson, right? T- am I saying that right? Rex Rex Tillerson? Yeah, he was the Secretary of State. Yeah, yeah. He, he made an announcement saying, yeah, we're not going to overthrow the, the Syrian government anymore. We're not – that's not our, our job anymore. We're, we're, we're done with that. And then suddenly, you know, two weeks later, uh, there's a chemical attack in Idlib. Yeah. And I'm like, so that's the one thing. You, you now have the funding cut. The, the U.S. government officially says we're done. We're not doing this anymore. Yep. And they just were like, you know what? This is going too good for us. We're going to do the one thing that gets this thing to come right back on us. Exactly. Exactly. And, it's, yeah. it's amazing. It's amazing how Assad um, has at multiple points, according to the official narrative, managed to do the one thing that he knows will attract U.S. military intervention against him. You know, especially at especially at a time when things are going his way, he he decides he wants to squander all of it. Uh, I don't know because he just likes losing or he likes a challenge. 
I don't know. But I mean, that's, you know, that's, that's the narrative that we're supposed to believe, and it's, it's so ridiculous. Well, anyway, I, wanted to, I didn't want to take up too much time. I'm sure it took up enough. But uh, I'm just saying you're going to be on the lookout for, imagine the most far-right neo-Nazi in Ukraine. They'll just put him in a suit, you know, clean him up a bit, and uh, Tabor's language. And, you know, this guy's a freedom fighter. And that's, <laughs> that's where we're going to be at. So yeah. thanks, Aaron. As always, love talking Thank with you, man. Thanks, Sam. Thanks for calling. Okay. Stephen, Stefan, you were up. Hey again, Aaron. So, yeah, thanks for covering all of this. I, I really appreciate it. Um, I think I've been seeing the real story of this as the U.S. Um, fabricating kind of an occasion for war in a covert way that people aren't able to really identify. And uh-huh. it kind of creates like this uh, mass consensus. <laughs> so, like, overnight we've had kind of this popular support fabricated for Ukraine in, in a very scary way to me, uh, using kind of new propaganda tools. Uh-huh. Uh, and I see what Russia is doing is kind of putting old tools back on the table, right? They're re-enabling the deterrence that they've historically had against U.S. imperialism. The troubling part to me is I don't see the anti-war movement doing this kind of, uh, first of all, accurately identifying what's going on here. <clears throat> and second, you know, actually imposing real teeth or consequences and accountability for senior, senior officials pushing for, uh, you know, failed military policy and intervention. So I guess my question is, do you have any hopes for domestic pushback against these new tools? Um, yeah. I have no hopes whatsoever. But at the same time, hope is also irrelevant, you know, because no matter what, whatever the prospects are of anything, any pushback developing, we're all of us who care about these issues should act in the exact same way. So, and, and you know, the future is unpredictable. Something, like who knows what, what kind of, you know, resistance or, protest movement will break out you never know so if you're i don't have any help but at the same time it doesn't matter you know because well we all just got to keep doing what we're doing but yeah on the point about the anti-war movement i think it's been so i think syria you know which i talked about was so effective at neutralizing the anti-war movement it really divided it there are people who consider themselves on the left progressive who got enlisted in supporting a cia dirty war through some really sophisticated propaganda that they didn't, you know, that they weren't able to uh, see through, unfortunately. It was very effective. It worked on a lot of people. And uh, I think that was effective at dividing the anti-war movement. I think Obama was brilliant at neutralizing the anti-war movement. You know, he sort of rode the wave of anti-Bush sentiment, you know, a resentment of the Iraq war. And what did he do? He just he just repackaged the Bush administration's foreign policy in a, in a nicer form. It, it wasn't that much different. And... um and then Russiagate, too, because Russiagate told liberals that to be good liberals, you have to worship the CIA and the FBI. And anything that challenges the national security state is Russian disinformation. So it's a difficult time for the anti-war movement. But, and I have very little hope for it. But at the same time, who knows? Hmm. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, I was, I was just kind of curious on your perspective on that. I mean, I, I see a lot of parallels between ISIS and al-Qaeda and then Azov. And it seems like there's a a new morphing that's region specific of each of these extremist groups that we deliberately seem to be enabling. And yes. you, know, you even have like Hillary Clinton bragging about turning Ukraine into the next, next Afghanistan. And I, 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 I get confused why people don't see those things, but then, yeah, I, I guess to your point, there's just kind of a moral imperative, right? So. Indeed. Yes. Okay. Thanks for the call, Stefan and no war. You are up. Um, hey there. Hi. You can call me Chris, even though my name says no more. 
I think it's gotcha. more important no work. to be anti-war. But, uh, <laughs> but you can also call me Chris. That's the proper noun I go by. Got it. Got it. Got it. No work, Chris. Just trying to find a tweet, and I can't quite find it. It's something I just came across or so scrolling that uh, cesspool of neolibs called Twitter. Uh, was Matthew Dimitri going after Jimmy Dore for uh, covering the Gray Zone article on on Bucha and um, and actively calling for his censorship and for YouTube to either pull down the video or pull down Jimmy, period. And it's just amazing to see these calls for censorship. You know, another one is Scott Ritter, who was on Useful Idiots on Friday and who can really, you know, document the Bucha stuff uh, in a really clear way and and has facts behind it. And, and um, you know, I was just curious, you know, your reaction to, to the calls for censorship that are just so prevalent now and why do you think it is and what got so many people who pretend to be on the left in favor of censorship? Why is that? It's just so, like, antithetical to, you know, thought and conversation and, and political yeah, yeah. conversation and whatnot. And then the other thing I did want to ask you about a little bit later was uh, whether you saw the video of Mike Tyson from uh, Wednesday evening on a flight, <laughs> on a JetBlue flight, and if you had any comments on that. <laughs> I, did, I did see the video. I did see the video. I have no comment. I mean, it's, I, I was, you know, I remember Mike Tyson in his prime, so I guess it's cool always to see him in action, and I, I hope that the guy who he was bugging him is okay. I don't want to see him get hurt, but it sounds like he was bothering Mike Tyson. That's that's the extent I can comment on it. And in terms of um, in terms of censorship, well, it's obvious why people want to censor Jimmy Dore and myself is because and many others, you know, um, in our circle is they can't engage with us on the facts. I mean, that's just you know, that's just I, I never call for censoring anybody. I think it's great that people who I totally disagree with and I think are factually completely negligent get to be aired because that's the whole point of, you know, like a basic free society is you air opinions and people get to decide for themselves. But people who don't like inconvenient opinions and inconvenient facts don't want to see them aired. And so that's why you see it's a huge trend in media right now. People love to, they want censorship and that just speaks to, you know, how constrained our media culture has been. And how inconvenient, like how just like um, what, how, how much the party line on so many key issues, especially on foreign policy, just is embedded and how everyone goes along with it. And those of us who don't go along with it are very inconvenient. So they want to they want to censor us. It's it's nothing new, but I'm just surprised whenever I see a journalist or someone calling themselves a journalist embrace it. Yeah, it's really quite it's just amazing. And I don't, do you have any opinions on how to fight it? We just keep doing our thing and saying our truth and, you know, trying and pushing back when people want to censor? Is there yeah. more we can do? Or, or yeah. is, that, is, that just, is that just it? I, yeah, I, I wish I had some magic insight on how to fight back, but we just have to be unapologetic and speaking the truth. And, you know, luckily most people have common sense. And when they hear someone clamoring for censorship, A, 
they're not going to want to go along with that because, you know, that's pretty well established now that censorship is bad. And B, they might, you know, ask, well, why, why is someone so determined to shut up someone else, to silent, to not let them speak? I mean, that's a sign that they actually can't stand behind their own argument. So to me, ultimately, these calls for censorship, although they're, they're scary and they're annoying, they have their benefits too because they expose who's actually really committed to not just free debate but also the facts because you only want to silence someone when you can't fight them on the facts. You know, anyway, that's – I'm sorry I don't have anything more original than that. No, that's fine. One last thing really quick, also kind of fun. Have you seen this uh, account on Twitter called Turncoat Don who's been, like, putting together these little almost Matt Matt Orfla-esque kind of segments? And he's, like, stamping. uh, The first one I saw was a couple weeks ago. It's like a two-minute video. And it's stamping Taibi and uh, Greenwald and Jimmy Dore and there's two others in that, uh, um, um, Tulsi and somebody else as right-wingers and, oh, Joe Rogan, I think. And they have, like, Joe uh, uh, saying, like, I support gay rights, I support rights for women, I support all these things. And then it's like a stamp, uh, right winger. And then Taibi saying, Hey, I support free speech, you know, and something's changed here. And like people used to really support this. And then it stamps him right winger. That sounds, that sounds really funny. I will, um, I have to say, I, I, I will say, all right, cool. Thank you, Chris. Thank you for your time. Have a good night. Okay. Bye. Greg, you're up. Aaron, uh, yeah, that was a funny video. I will also contend to that. Um, I also wanted to ask where you thought this censorship really started. Um, for me, I felt like I really started noticing it when I was in high school. And um, that was back when the Libyan invasion started. And that's when I was really paying attention to stuff. And I remember having stupid internet uh, arguments with people where they would start accusing me of being Russian, basically for uh, arguing kind of anti-Western perspectives. And I feel like I've seen it for a long time, like propagating. And I don't know if they're real people or not, but it, it the sentiment has been there. And I just, I, I felt like Russiagate was a huge primer for just, making linking it all back to this one evil person trump to just invoke it because whenever i have a conversation with anyone who's over the age of like (laughs) i don't know 40 or 50 or anyone who's like a baby boomer or a boomer they just automatically get most of them at least get really enraged and i think i've been just extremely propagandized by the media and they just all link it back to like at least where I am in a metropolitan area to like Trump and racism. And I was just wondering, when do you think this kind of, I I just don't think it's, this came out of nowhere. Like, I think this has been kind of a long (laughs) rolling plan. And if it's going to go where I think it's going to go next, it's not going to be pretty, but, um, but what do you think about that, Aaron? I think Russiagate arose from, it didn't just start with Trump's victory. It began before where 
And, and this goes back to Syria. It really angered people inside the national security state when Syria intervened. So sorry, when Russia intervened in Syria. And as I quoted from John Kerry before, and hopefully you guys could hear it because the sound was a bit muffled. But John Kerry said that Russia came in because the U.S. was letting ISIS grow. And in Kerry's words, Russia didn't want an ISIS government. Right. And Russia was successful. It stopped the threat of an ISIS. Okay, let's. All right, I don't know what that sound is coming from. But that is a terrible sound. So hopefully. Okay, I'm going to take the next caller in the hopes that that sound will go away. Um, no. Am I still making noise? Yes, it's you are. Yes, you are. Chris, Chris, you're still there somehow. Let me hit hang up. Sorry, <laughs> so, my yeah, phone's let, in my pocket and I'm driving. Yeah, I'll go. Yeah, me, yeah. yeah. I'm just sorry. Ex- no, it's, 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 it's not your fault. Just, just exit the app and then open it up again, okay? Yes, there we go. Okay. So, you know, uh, John Kerry, as John Kerry said, it was the U.S. Uh, it was Russia that came in because the U.S. was allowing the possibility of an ISIS government, and Russia put an end to that. Russian intervention basically defeated, helped defeat the dirty war. And so there was a lot of animosity inside Washington towards that, in part because they didn't predict it. They didn't actually foresee that Russia was going to come in to help Assad. And that's another just, you know, um, uh, blot on the record of U.S. intelligence. They just didn't foresee that, even though Syria was Russia's most important U.S. ally. And there were a lot of actually extremists going from Russia uh, and Chechnya to go over and fight on behalf of the jihadists. And so Russia saw this as a, a big security threat to have a jihadist uh, hotspot or haven inside of Syria. So anyway, there was a lot of animus towards Russia for that. And then also in Ukraine, too, when Russia you know, took Crimea, that also wasn't foreseen. And Russia backed the rebels in the Donbass. So even before, even before Trump came along, there was a huge animus inside Washington toward Russia. And when Trump came in and he's talking about cooperating with Russia and he's talking about um, he's criticizing the dirty war in Syria, that was a big that was a part of his campaign pitch to voters. I completely agree. I completely agree. If if you go back, he was saying things on the campaign trail that Hillary Clinton, you know, left Syria in ruins and killed a lot of people. But his policy totally spoke different from that later in his presidency. so, so, So so what Russiagate was. It was brilliant for those who t- carried up because it, it wasn't just an effort by the Clintons to have to deflect blame for losing. It was also brilliant by the national security state because it not only constrained Trump, it, it only mm. not, it, not, it not only boxed him in into a into a into a small corner and prevented him from actually cooperating with Russia to the extent he was ever serious about it. He could have just been you know freestyling as he often does, and not I don't think he actually had any real interest in cooperating with Russia, but at least that's what he was saying. So painting him as a Russian agent would box him in. And also it would stigmatize. And this to me is one of the most overlooked parts of it. It would stigmatize calls for cooperation with Russia. It would stigmatize, it it would stigmatize Trump's criticism, however insincere it was of intervention, because all that could be painted as the product of Russian disinformation or Russian brainwashing. Yeah, and like you're saying, Trump believed whoever was in the room with him. And during his initial campaigns, Bannon had a lot of control in there and Miller. And I think they had more realist 
objectives in terms of viewing Russia and combating China, which is why he was so hawkish at, on China yeah. during his campaign. But that, I feel like this has also led to the destruction. I mean, this war, I, I followed so many people and so many people I know just because I live in this a metropolitan area who are leftists. I feel like just the left movement has been obliterated by this, like to a very large degree, like many people who I would think are anti-war would are just supporting sending weapons there. And I don't know what to think about it. Cause I can understand viewing it as like the, Oh, the, the Spanish civil war and looking at it in those terms. But I don't know. <laughs> I often say this. I'm sorry to anyone who's hearing me repeat myself for the millionth time, but you know the Trump administration began with some activist energy. There was the Women's March and there was the protest against the Muslim ban. And then Russiagate accelerated and all of a sudden being in, in the resistance meant being glued to MSNBC or CNN and, and letting Robert Mueller, the former director of the, of the FBI, save the day. That's what resist, resistance became to the point where – and this is something I say often – there were bigger liberal protests under Trump – to save Jeff Sessions' job than there was to, say, oppose Trump's tax heist or to save Obamacare. That's how pathetic things got, that literally liberals were rallying when Jeff Sessions was fired to save his job because they thought that Jeff Sessions being fired meant that Mueller would get shut down, which, of course, was a was completely false. But <laughs> it's the end the, of the world right there. <laughs> yeah. And that's where the that's where the liberal left was at, rallying to save yeah. Jeff Sessions' job. It says it all right there. Well, one last thing. Also, Biden, he also, when he came to my state, he looked to his, I guess it would be his right, and he tried to shake hands with whatever imaginary uh, somebody was there, and uh, it was sad to watch. And if Biden should be promoting anything, it should be Dubai bulbs. People should look into those. They're super efficient, and we should have them. All right. So. All right. Greg, thank you. Thanks for the call. Mm -hmm. Okay. CJ. And CJ, if you're there, you can unmute yourself by hitting the microphone in the bottom right. And if not, we'll go to the next caller, which is Corey. And reminder to everybody that when you come in, there's a microphone button in the bottom right, which you hit to unmute yourself. Okay, we lost Corey and Tactical. You're up. Okay, we lost tactical Rudy. Hey, how you doing, Eric? Hi. Uh, hey, thanks, man, for again for all you do. I was um listening to the numerous things you were listing that you know criminal things that Biden has done, and you know has done until now, and it just it, I've just been like bothered by a lot of people. Looking at what the Biden administration is doing and basically pretending that it's not Biden doing these things. Biden is not at the wheel. It's just, um, it's the war hawks doing it or it's the corporate Dem Democrats doing it or he's been dealt a bad hand, you know, and it goes from like Ron uh, Rose says it, but like the Sam Cedars say it. Um, it it's crazy because I feel like this is Biden. We're seeing how Biden would be ruling if he was, you know, not sort of mentally ill. But to be honest, this is this is him. And the other thing, and then I'll drop it after that. The other thing too is, I was um, watching Bream on um, 
the the hill and i thought you know and she was sort of describing these um you know these corrupt democrats and she said that the person is moderate and i was thinking you know i understand why somebody would call joe biden a moderate but if we were to really look at things you know um and we base it on the existential nature of like the, you know where we're at right now joe biden is not a moderate he's very much an extremist if if any and i mean realistically joe biden is a right winger and so i suppose like how much would it help to define these guys properly as right wingers and as not moderates and i'll drop it here thanks man yeah i totally agree uh because these people occasionally say nice things about you know stuff that everyone agrees on like or everyone you know um, on the liberal side agrees on like, you know, equal rights for everybody uh, because they say platitudes like that, but they still preside over policies that kill millions of people via sanctions and war. Why should we still call them moderates and not right wingers? It's pretty right wing to kill people for the sake of us agenda. So I totally agree with that. I totally agree. They should be called right wingers. The problem is, is uh, you know, the, the problem is now people on the see, and this is where things are getting, complicated and the, the problem is people on the right now you, you look at congress on some issues and I, i'm sorry i hate to say this because i'm not a fan of of other republicans but they're better on war in some cases than people on the left so right. the mean the meaning of what right wing means is be, is becoming different and left wing like who on the left in congress is forcefully speaking out against biden's proxy war in ukraine or was ever good on syria I mean, uh, there's almost no one. Yet you have some people on the right who are actually pretty good. I mean, it's a small number, but still, it's more of a sizable force. Tucker Carlson, there's a lot to criticize about him. But yet, you look at cable news, he's on the right, and he's way better on on issues of war and peace than on, than anybody else on cable news, including people who identify as being on the left. So that's, you know, um, the the definitions of what these terms mean if we apply them to their contemporary reality are, are changing, you know, but, uh, you certainly, um, you know, the, the right, the right is nothing I've ever identified with. And the traditional left is where I've always identified. And I just see the, as you say, those, those, uh, those values are being increasingly ab- abandoned. Those things are difficult. I suppose the moderate thing though, too, because I don't think it does help, um, you know, when we're trying to wake people up to call Joe Biden moderate. It's it's the same effect as like Joe, um, wasn't it Bernie Sanders going around calling Joe Biden his friend? So people are like, okay, well, like, what do you mean? You're saying that this guy is dangerous and all of this, but you're calling him a moderate or, but yeah, definitely take what you're talking about about like right wing versus left wing in the United States. I mean, Tucker Carlson has said like some really, really awful stuff about Iraqi people. Um, but then like you look at his position and he is a person that, you know, is much better for the Iraqis than a person like, you know, Biden or Obama that know all the celebrations of, you know, brown people around the world and will tweet it whenever there's a, I don't know, Eid and all of that. But, you know, like to on a Tuesday just bomb brown people just for giggles and you know stocks. 
Um, yeah, so I've been I've been listening to a lot of like um, Malian politics, and which is like really cool. And I would just say I think people should try if you do speak another language, try consuming other media because it'll break like it'll make you a lot more sane because suddenly it, you, you're not so crazy for thinking that things are not normal because a lot of these people don't think it is normal for the United States to basically be able to do whatever it wants. I hear that. I hear that, Rudy. Thank, Thank you, you for man. the call. Thank you for the call. Peace. John, peace. Uh, hello, can you hear me? Hi. Yes, hi. Uh, hey. Well, this is my first time on this app, and I love, it. I love the concept. It's so cool. Anyhow, um, so my question was about the, the about like the week or so that like before the Ukraine war started, right? Um, I remember, I mean, even before then, there has been a lot of like the articles and whatnot from the Western media about, oh, Russia's about to invade, oh, Russia's going to invade and this and that, right? Uh, but I like there was a specific week or two week period or like around that time before the war where it was like it felt like it was like more than usual right and then I heard in like some of the um, leftist uh, media personalities like the anti-imperialist western uh, sorry leftist media personalities that they said that during this time the shelling of the area of Donbass had also had increased like way more compared to the past. Do, uh, I, I wanted to ask you, do you know if this information could be correct? Because I haven't had the time to verify if like... Okay, so your, yes, uh, your question is, in the weeks before Russia invaded, did shelling in the Donbass increase from the Ukrainian side? Is that what you're asking? Yes, because I heard that during yeah. this time it was like unusually increased. Yes, yes. Well, there are uh, the OSCE, which monitors this stuff, did put out reports, and I haven't studied this too closely, but others who have cited them say that yes, in that period there was an increase in showing, and I will link in the show notes to this to an article that does argue that, and it, it actually it actually shows screen caps from the OSCE reports, which does show an increase in shelling. The article is by Jacques Beau, who is a former NATO advisor, who I interviewed on my show Pushback a few weeks ago. And he, he, he does argue that, and he's, he bases that on the figures that were put out by the OSCE, which I was their monitor on the ground. I think I report, by the way. Oh, okay. So, so, so you, so, and, and so were those, I mean, did you see those, those figures and those graphs, and, and were they convincing to you? I think I skimmed it, so I didn't have. The well, there you go. Okay, all right, all right. So, but for everyone, so, yeah, okay. So, I'm going to put the link in, and people can see for themselves if you know what the figures show. And and um, there's also a blog called Moon of Alabama, and they put out an OSCE a, a piece of it, which showed that there was a huge amount of uh, increase in shelling, and most of it, most of it was coming on the side of, of the rebel held territories of the Donbass. So mm-hmm. that's the argument. I haven't independently verified it, but certainly there are people who make that argument. Okay. Okay. Good. Because, um, yeah, that certainly speaks volumes to me. If indeed 
that narrative is correct. And if yeah. indeed, like the math checks up, that speaks volume to me to the intentions of like the war had to have started in order to basically block off the further um, yeah, and the point also made is that allegedly, and I haven't verified this either, so this could be wrong, but Jacques Beau says that there were 60,000 Ukrainian troops in that area, and he says, why else would they be there if not to launch an imminent invasion? Yeah. And um, I haven't independently verified that, but that's what he says, and so it's worth at least debating. And you know what? We have a guest coming up next in the queue, Serge, who's in Ukraine. And perhaps he can speak to that. Perhaps he's heard something that can help us shed a light on it. So, um, but yeah, certainly look, I, I think the possibility raised in your question is, is totally legit. I just don't know if it's true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for answering my question. Thank and you. Thank you for doing the show. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for calling. All right. Serge, you're up. And Serge, you're up late too. It's got to be late where you are. So thank you for uh, for staying up for us. Oh yeah, it's four a.m. here. But four a.m. Yeah, I thought I should stick around to talk with you. Hi, Aaron. Uh, hi, everyone. Yeah, as for the question, um, if Ukraine was going to attack Russia first, I think uh, the well, the Donbas first. The attack the Donbas. Yeah, first. yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the Donbass area, uh, basically, with uh, the idea of provoking Russia into taking part in, in a hot war. Yeah, I think I think there is a high chance that it was the U.S. plan. So basically, you have uh, option A: Ukraine creates a false flag of the version and starts uh, heavily shelling Donbass area, provoking. Russia into, well, this uh, denazifying operation, or Plan B, you know, uh, make it obvious to Russia that this is going to happen, basically provoke it attack first and make it things even, even worse uh, for Russia, you know, marketing-wise. Uh, I think there's great chance to it, and especially given the fact that um, I feel like um, most Azov troops uh, are stationed, were stationed in Mariupol, and that's exactly the reason why are they are being blockaded on Azov style right now, uh, without uh, any help or support from the Ukrainian government. Uh, you know, we keep hearing about these calls to support Azov and to support Ukraine. But the reality is that um, I follow their Telegram channels and other channels as well. Uh, and those Azov's guys express, um, you know, incredible, uh, I, don't, I don't know, how, how, you, how would you describe it? Well, they're very dissatisfied with the Ukrainian government, the fact that they're being... Um, basically abandoned there. But of course, I think it's only happening because uh, Russia was able to, you know, um, to take, uh, to put them in this blockade by first attacking Kiev, Kharkov, and uh, 
other central points, central uh, parts of Ukraine, in order to, you know, uh, catch the attention of the Ukrainian army there, uh, while trapping most the most most of the Azov troops in Mariupol, and they were able to successfully trap them there when they pulled the troops from Kiev, Kharkov. Um, and basically put them in the schedule. Uh, so, yeah, I think there's high chance that uh, Ukraine was going to attack Donbass. Uh, there, I just don't know what other reason would there be for all of this escalation in the last year, you know, in last years, in recent years, if it wasn't to uh, try to take back Donbass and, you know, provoke Russia into this big holy war. Uh, especially when you know these guys, these Azov guys, Pravy Sektor, uh, another big Nazi group is uh, S-14 or Siege, uh, which is being led by Yevgeny Karais, uh, an old neo-Nazi here. And all of these guys, they've been living with the idea that, you know, they're these national heroes which will fight in this big sacred war to make Ukraine great again, I guess. So obviously they were not brought up uh, just to be nice boys and, you know, solve everything in a diplomatic way. They were brought up as specifically for this reason, to make the diplomatic solution impossible. And I think that they achieved it. Uh, so that's that. And I just wanted uh, to say that, um, well, they're saying that um, this war in Ukraine is a great humanitarian uh, crisis. And... Uh, like all of these weapons are not going to be, um, I don't know, taken care of after the war ends. And all of this crisis is going to leave uh, uh, Europe very vulnerable, especially right now when, you know, we have all of these uh, talks of famine and energy crisis, even in the U.S. with, uh, I think, about... 20 food processing plants getting exploded for some reason uh, and, and the talks of cyber attacks on food prices and plants um, you know I think that something big is coming and yeah I just also wanted to mention <laughs> one of my um, one of the horrors that um, I imagine you know there's this guy this British activist whose name is Majid Navas, and um, he used to be uh, a radical Islamist, and basically what he's doing right now is working to de-radicalize Islamists in Europe and US, I guess. And what he's saying that, what he's seeing right now is that uh, there's been some extreme radicalization of 
all of those Muslims that have been living in Europe for all these years and which have been coming to Europe uh, since the destabilization of the Middle East, which is, by the way, very synthetic to me in a way. And he says that there's a great chance that uh, there will be this secret war in Europe between Nazis that got radicalized by the Ukrainian war and uh, the Muslims, which were radicalized by this war because they have seen what uh, those Nazis here in Ukraine have been doing to the Chechen fighters who are also Muslim, of course. So, you know, we're in for a very good ride, I guess. Yes. You know, let me say about Majid Nawaz. He, I know he's been speaking out about the war in Ukraine. And what I've heard him say, I actually agree with. But he has an interesting past. And, and my colleague, Max Blumenthal, did a long profile of him in 2016 that was very critical of him and some of what he was doing. So I, I would just take what he says with a... With skepticism, it doesn't mean it doesn't mean he's wrong, but he he he's had some um, views I find questionable, and I will link because I mentioned it uh, to Max's article for anybody who's interested in that. It's from 2016. Um, so, Serge, thank you, thank you for staying up so late and calling in, and uh, I'm I'm glad to hear you're safe, and and uh, it's always great to hear from you. Thank you so much, Catherine. You are up. Hello, Aaron. Hi. Hi. Well, thank you for your work. And I want to follow up on some comments you made about these, the origin of the hostility towards Russia. Uh-huh. It's certainly before Russiagate, and you placed it more around war in Syria. But doesn't this go as far back as World War II? I believe Winston Churchill himself wrote something targeting Russia as a great threat to Western Empire. Um, and, and couldn't this all have been planned ever since that time? Oh, well, cer- certainly there's, I mean, I didn't mean to suggest that all this just began with, you know, Syria and Ukraine and Russia. No, look, but in the contemporary period, you know, where I, I mean, you also go back to the expansion of NATO after uh, the Soviet Union collapsed and how instead of incorporating a new security order that included post-Soviet Russia, the U.S. deliberately excluded Russia and thereby made security in Europe divisible by expanding NATO to Russia's borders. But I think the real turning point was 2007 when Vladimir Putin gave that speech at Munich. And I recommend it for people who haven't heard it or, or read it, where he basically said to the U.S. with John McCain sitting in the audience in one of the first rows saying that the unipolar moment is over, that you've bullied us around and you've dictated to us you know, our policies and um, – you know, with your invasion of Iraq and he criticized other U.S. crimes. He said, that's over. And he said, we're not going to be kicked around anymore. And that's when Vladimir Putin went from being a potential U.S. ally. Recall just a few years before that, George W. Bush was saying that he looked into Vladimir Putin's soul, you know, and he could see good in Vladimir Putin's soul. All that was done. Now, all of a sudden, Vladimir Putin was an evil villain who personified the worst in the world. And that's that really is the where I would start the the recent history because that was a real turning point. And not long after that, Putin um, fought back in Georgia after the U.S. basically encouraged Georgia to try to retake South Ossetia. And Russia won that, although Russia performed very badly. And that angered people like John McCain. 
and uh and onwards and then you had um the uh Libya where the US basically duped Russia into sitting by and letting the US get a security council authorization to bomb Libya because Russia was promised that the US was not going to do regime change they just wanted a no fly zone in Benghazi and of course that was a complete lie and the US and its allies used the no fly zone to push for regime change in Libya and we all know what happened next uh you know that country is now um regressed in so many different ways and Russia is very bitter about that. So, I mean, these are all important things. I just, I, in terms of the animus towards Russia, I think it really escalated when Russia uh, undermined the U.S. in both Ukraine after the 2014 coup and in Syria with the dirty war. Okay, well, I'll uh, read Putin's speech from 2007. Thanks for your comments. And I will link to it. I will link to it in this in the show notes. So thank you. Okay, BJ. And BJ, if you're there, there's a microphone button in the, in the bottom right. Yeah, this is my first time calling, so I was lose. Oh, thank you. Well, oh. it worked. Yeah. Uh, this, uh, you know, I've been following you for a long time, and I'm you know, My question to you is, uh, can you give me some insight on how do you go about, you know, like finding all this information? Like you, your work seems, you know, very rigorous to me. Um, like I try to find this information myself, and I, you know, I am unsuccessful. So can you just give me some idea? How do you, how do you, how do you like choose what you want to do, and how do you find information? Thank you. Well, first of all, thank you for your support. I really appreciate it. It's what sustains the work I do. So thank you. Um, I um, in terms of uh, how I get information, I, I, I kind of, I've, I've been, re- I just, I've been doing this for so long that I just kind of. I develop an intuitive sense of if I'm reading something, whether it's going to be useful for me or not. I can just kind of tell if there's going to be something in there. And usually I'm correct. And I, I, I skim because I don't read, I don't read every single word. If I'm reading like a long article in say the Wall Street Journal, uh, you know, I'll skim and I'll especially pay attention near the end of the article because that's usually where the truth is contained. So that is a tip. Look, look especially near the end of an article. Um, and, Try to read as much establishment, uh, you know, journalism as you can, because you know, even though it's a lot of it's propaganda, they do bury the truth in there sometimes, because they have access to sources that that that, that I'll never have. So, uh, you know, just um, but a lot of it is, I guess, it's intuitive. You know, I don't, uh, I just read a lot, and luckily I have the time to because it's my job. You know, and, and that's also part of the problem is people don't have the time to undertake the kind of research projects that I can do, you know? So I think that, that, that gives me an, an advantage there because this is what my job is, you know? So, um, th- that's the, that's the advice I can give. I, I can't think of anything else that might be useful. I just, I just read a lot and I, I guess I get lucky. <laughs> can, if, if I may, can I ask one other question? Yeah. So, yeah. As you say that like you read a lot and when I mean, this stuff is really depressing in some sense, I'm, so how do you stay sane while reading all this thing, which is, at least to me, is very, very depressing? Because it has nothing to do with me. It has absolutely nothing. Not, none of this has anything to do with me at all. Nothing. So why should I be depressed about it? There's plenty of things to be depressed about. But, you know, for me to get depressed about stuff I'm reading about, to me, would actually be very selfish. Because I'm not actually even experiencing it. I'm not living it. You know, when I go to places like Gaza or Syria... I'm, I think to myself, God, like how, you know, if I lived in conditions like this, I'm like, what would I do? I mean, that's, that to me is a real, 
uh, question is how do how do people in dire conditions not get depressed? And so um, for me, when all I'm doing is just consuming information and occasionally witnessing stuff firsthand, there's no reason for me to be, be depressed. I'm lucky. I'm incredibly fortunate to be um, to that my relationship to all the suffering in the world and all the injustice is just to to read about it and to and to learn about it. You know, that's actually an incredibly privileged position to be in. So. The only thing to do in the situation is not be depressed, but just try to do something about it. Okay, thank you. Thanks, Vijay. Okay, Bye. Jeff. And Jeff, if you're there, there's a microphone button in the bottom right. Okay, I'm ju- is it activated now? It's activated, yes. Hi. Okay, hi. Yeah, well, thank you for what you're doing. And um, I just wanted to make a point real quickly that you know, like, like when people talk about the United States not stepping up and, and challenging Russia, you know, there's been lots of times when Russia probably wanted to challenge the United States, but they were on the, the shoe was on the other foot and they, they knew better than to try to, to instigate a, a nuclear war over something, you know, that, that was, uh, well, I mean, you know, it, it all has consequences, but, but, you know, the consequences weren't, weren't their own personal consequences. It was somebody else's, unfortunately. And, you know, it, it, it's a bummer that, that we have to kind of, uh, uh, take other people's consequences more lightly than they need to be because of the nuclear thing hanging over, over our heads. But, you know, that, that's just reality. That's that's what the 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 nuclear situation does, but um, absolutely, yeah. But the other thing that I wanted to get into was um, like on either side, we just hear such extreme narratives that that are totally opposed to each other, and and they can't both be true. And there just doesn't seem to be any real independent reporting done on the in in war situations anymore it seems like the one lesson they learned from vietnam was don't allow people to see what really happens you know to see the true true reality absolutely 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 and so you know i understand that 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 actually getting you know seeing this, this stuff firsthand is a very dangerous situation you know I mean, it's it's probably even more dangerous than being a soldier uh, to a certain degree because you know you're you you're if somebody's pissed off that at you, it's very easy for them to take measures to make your life miserable. And um, so, what would it take to to create independent reporting to to make it actually happen so that people can actually you know, have a better idea that the reality of war and not just see it through their own lens and see the, 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 the totality of it all. Yeah. Well, look, I mean, we're all trying. I mean, all of us who are involved in, in independent journalism are doing our best. I mean, we don't have the money and the resources that others do. Uh, for projects like CNN Plus, which just went under after like two weeks and $300 million, which speaks to how little interest the public has in in corporate media, but unfortunately, you know, no matter how many failures happen in corporate media, they're just never going to be the resources in independent media that they have to fund their failures. And that's just how it is. But for independent media in Ukraine, there's people like Patrick Lancaster, who's on the ground 
in the Donbass. He does stuff. Um, I'd like to go one day, uh, if I can, but who knows? Um, I don't know how to build independent media uh, beyond what I've already done myself. It's very difficult. You, you have to find people with money and, you know, when you find people with people with money, then that often leads to compromises. And, uh, so it's difficult. It's difficult to stay true to independent media, but you know, I'm doing my best. Yeah. Well, I, I appreciate what, what people like you are doing. And I think that people need to understand that absent of that, you know, people like Chelsea Manning and WikiLeaks and, um, uh, who's the guy that that's over there in Russia right now. And we, we need to hear from yeah. them too. You know, yeah, that, yeah. you know, I mean, absent of that, you know, we, we should, everybody should appreciate the importance of what they're doing because without them doing what they're doing, there's really nothing verifiable. You just get the same narrative from either side, which is just, uh, you know, uh, just, just, just making themselves look, look, uh, good and, and the other side look bad and, right. and there's no real truth to it. And that's why the most important journalist we have is currently in a dungeon, Julian Assange, and facing extradition to the U.S. because he does exactly what a journalism, what a journalist should do. And so for that, he has to be locked up. And um, that's where we're at. Jeff, thanks for the call. Okay, thank you. Corey, you're up. Hi, Aaron. How are you, mate? I'm good. Good. How are you? Yeah, good, thanks. Um, yeah, I'm calling from Brisbane, Australia. Um just two things. Um, basically, um, I just wanted to, firstly, I actually got to speak, we've got an election coming up here in Australia, and I got to speak to uh, our senator in the region about Assange yesterday. And um, he basically, he's a liberal senator, McGrath. He basically just, basically said, look, we're on his side, but we can't do anything. And um, went through all the rigmarole of politicking, I guess. But um, I think it was like the first time he'd actually been confronted with anyone who was pro Assange, I guess, in that in that aspect. And it just for me it showed that us as Australians don't even really, unfortunately, really care about the whole Assange um, well dilemma, I guess, for lack of a better term. And um, yeah. The other thing I wanted to mention was um, today for us here in Australia is Anzac Day, which is our, probably our most sacred holiday as a nation. And it uh, it's actually the day that we went and fought in Gallipoli. And it's not a celebration. It's actually a commemoration of a battle we actually lost. And it's for me, it reminds me that, you know, war is a terrible, terrible, terrible thing. It's it's, you know, yes, you get all these great stories, you get these holidays, blah, 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 but it's the, our, our holiday is actually a remembrance of the loss of life. And it seems, again, that in Australia we're very pro-war, pro-wanting to get involved in the Ukraine and, and help help NATO or end the Allies, I guess. And it's just really saddening that even though we have a great holiday to remember the terror of war rather than celebrate it, it seems like we are very much a uh, a sister of America in wanting to go to war constantly. I uh, well, listen. Thanks for all that. I really appreciate your words, and thank you for raising Julian Assange with your uh, senator. And yeah, Australia is in a really interesting position. It um, 
it could, you know, uh, it, it seems to be totally subordinating itself to the US UK led alliance. And that's, that's too bad. And, um, being used as a cudgel against China rather than forging its own independent path. And, you know, that's the tragedy of U.S. influence is that it forces countries to be hostile towards their neighbors rather than friendly. And that's just, I don't know, it's most stark right now in Ukraine especially, but that resonates elsewhere as well. All right. No, thank you for that. Thanks very much, Aaron. Thanks, Corey. Okay. Uh, I have, we're going to have to wrap. But I want to leave, so to the callers online who I have not gotten to, I apologize. I hope you'll call back next time. I just want to close with one thing that just came out in the New York Times. I think it's so funny. Uh, and it's an article in the Times about Ukraine. And it's all about how the U.S. got into, you know, the, the, how basically the path towards the war in Ukraine. It's called America's Road to the Ukraine War. And it attempts to be a summary of the relevant history leading up to the war in Ukraine. And this is how uh, they describe the infamous phone call between Victoria Nuland and the U.S. Ambassador Jeffrey Piat. Most of you have heard it. For those who don't know it, this is February 2014. A call comes out. It's leaked. It was intercepted, presumably by Russia or Ukraine, in which Victoria Nuland, who's a senior official under Obama, is talking to Jeffrey Piat, the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, and they're plotting who to install in the Ukrainian government. And they even, and Nuland even selects who the next Ukrainian leader will be. She says Yats is the guy. And lo and behold, a few weeks later, there was a coup and Yats, Yatsenyuk became the guy. He became the prime minister of Ukraine. And so this is how, so, you know, this, this uh, phone call with Nuland, these days you don't hear about it very often in U.S. media because it's so inconvenient to the narrative. We're supposed to believe that U, the U.S cares about Ukrainian democracy, and we're supposed to believe that Vladimir, that Russia invaded Ukraine unprovoked, and history began basically when Russia invaded, not learn about the U.S.-backed coup in 2014 and the Donbass war since. So you don't hear about the Newland call very often in U.S. media because it's so inconvenient to the narrative, right? But sometimes you do hear about it, and one example is in this new article in The Times. Uh, and this is how they render the, the Victoria Newland call. They say this, quote, the division was captured, um, and, and by division, they mean the division between the U.S. and Russia over Ukraine. Quote, the division was captured in a phone call in which a senior State Department official profanely criticized European leaders' approach to helping Ukraine. A leaked recording of the call was posted on YouTube in February 2014 in what was widely believed to be an attempt by Russia to stir up discord between the U.S. and Europe. So this is how the New York Times renders this explosive phone call in which a senior U.S. official picks the new Ukrainian government that is to come in after a coup that did indeed happen. They describe it as uh, this official, Newland quote, profanely criticizing European leaders' approach to helping Ukraine. Okay, And that's a reference to when Newland says on the call, fuck the EU. They don't mention the, the part of the call in which Newland picks the new Ukrainian leader, <laughs> uh, including Yatsenyuk, who she says Yats is the guy. And then the Times phrase it as just an attempt by Russia to, quote, stir up discord between the U.S. and Europe. That's how the New York Times renders a phone call of a top U.S. official who, by the way, they don't even name. They don't mention the name Victoria Nuland, which is very funny because Nuland is, you know, it's not as if she's obscure. She's actually now back in power under Obama. But they even leave out her name, which is interesting. But that's how they do it. And that's how U.S. stenography works. And um I'm glad to be here with you all to provide a little bit of a counterbalance to that in the best way we all can. So thank you for tuning in once again. I really appreciate everyone's comments.
and calls. And I'll be back on here tomorrow if you're around at 11 a.m. Eastern time with Katie Halper as we do our Useful Idiots call-in show after the Monday morning stream on YouTube, which is at 10 o'clock a.m. And that's it. Have a great rest of your night, everybody. Thank you.